Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. How is everyone doing today? Um, daylight savings happen, so I feel very refreshed. I love when we fall back, so I get another hour. Um, though I did go to a ab workout class this morning, which I highly regret. Not because I'm anti-exercise or anything. Like, it was probably really good for me, but it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And I'm fearing for my abs tomorrow because I know, you know, when you just like work out and you know it's going to hurt tomorrow and then the next day it's like you just can barely move and you can't laugh and everything's painful because you're so out of shape. That's what's going to happen. And I'm fearing for my life for it. Anyways, today I have a lot to talk about today, but before we get into the main discussion, I do want to share um a listener email that I received that was pretty interesting. This is from Mathis. Hey, hey, Mina. I loved your podcast episode this week on the creation of fiber produced out of hair. Well, I actually know about a different type of usage for human hair that is sustainable and cleans up our oceans. There are one or two organizations to which you can donate your hair or the leftover hair from your hair salon, for example. They then use these collected hair masses and press them down or weave them, I'm not sure, but they basically create a mat that is then used to clean out oil from the ocean. Because the human hair mat, this is such a funny word combination, can absorb a ton of oil which helps to make the ocean cleaner. I'm so fond of this project because it is such a crazy but clever idea, and I thought you might be interested in it given your interest for hair fiber. BTW, I would totally wear hair. Like, hello, there are endless possibilities creating unique colors and patterns with curly or colored hair, for example. Or you could really go scene queen and tease your sweater. The possibilities are endless. I hope this is not too long of a message. Greetings from a small country town in Germany where I experience a lot of the agritourism you talked about as well. Mathis Salome Grober. I hope I pronounced that name correctly. Thank you, Mathis, for writing in. Um, I think this is an incredible organization. So I looked it up, and I know you said there's like one or two, but the one that I found was matteroftrust.org, and they actually have a section. So if anyone is part of a hair salon or is someone who grooms animals because you can also submit animal hair or you're like a sheep farmer and you have excess fleece um, – you can donate your excess hair to, uh, as Matha says, soak up major oil spills and help keep storm drains and waterways clean. Also, even if you just, I guess, go to a hair salon and you think that the people there would be interested in doing this kind of initiative, I would definitely uh, suggest that to your hair salon that you go to. Okay, cool. Um, all right, let's just get into the subject at hand here because if you hear that that's the ruffling rustling ruffling rustling of paper because um I started being really analog and part of what I'm going to be talking about is in relation to my analog journey um I've been writing down a lot of things on paper instead of typing it out which has taken a lot longer but I think is like more worth it in terms of my memorization and just being able to think more deeply about what I'm writing about. Um, but okay, let me just start. So intro. <laughs> oh my God. The reason I got into this topic in part is because I'm reading the second Poppy War book by R.F. Quang. R.F. Quang. 
It's called The Dragon Republic. And I think I talked about the Poppy War in an earlier podcast episode. Yes, I'm finally moving on to the second book. I took a long-ass break in part because um, the first book is really heavy. And I think the second book is also going to be really heavy because I think the entire series is just a very heavy um, series. Emotionally heavy, not like heavy as in thick. Though it is a pretty thick book now that I'm looking at it. But yeah, I went to the bookstore to buy this book in person and the cashier who rung me up, he was like, oh, how'd you like the first book? And I was like, I honestly, I took like a pretty long break because it was really brutal. And he goes, oh, you'll probably take a long break after the next one too. (laughs) So I'm excited for that. But also another reason why I put it on the shelf for a while is because I was just, um, doing other things. And the thing with this book series is that it's very addictive. And I had this experience reading her pre- like her other book, not a previous book, but another book that she wrote called Babel, which is like a dark academia, colonization, fantasy kind of book. And I devoured that book in like two days. And it's a very long book. And so I was like, I don't have the time right now to be devouring books like that because if I'm reading something and I know that I'm really enjoying it, I will not put it down until it's done. I will not work. I will not like take breaks. Sometimes I won't eat. Like I'll forget to eat just because I'm so um, pulled in by the book. So I had to like really take a breather and make sure that I was in a productive mode for a while so that I could earn my next reading experience, right? But the only problem is that I don't really remember what happened in the first book because it's been so long. So now I have to like go on Wikipedia (laughs) and get a summary, a plot summary of what happened in the first book because I started reading like the first chapter and I was like, wait, who are, who is this person? Wait, what happened to this other character? I really don't remember. Um, So that's what I'm reading right now. In terms of news articles, magazine articles I've read, I read this really interesting article that was published March 2023. I actually read a series of articles about the same topic, but in March 2023, March 2023, Jesus, I read this article about how Americans are reading less than they ever have before in like the 16 year time period that um, the data was measuring. So Americans say they read an average of 12.6 books a year currently, which is roughly two to three books fewer than what they read from 2001 to 2016. There's also a notable decline that's greater among college grads, women, and older Americans who are generally like the demographic who tends to read more. And college graduates read an average of six fewer books in 2021 than they did between 2002 to 2016, which was 14.6 and 21.1 books, respectively. So I feel like there's just been a lot of discourse lately about how people or kids especially are getting dumber, um, which I don't necessarily know if that's like true. I think that might be an over-conflation of different things that are going on because I also don't think that reading more books makes you smarter than someone who reads less books because I don't think this study um, counts for the fact that some books are literally like a thousand pages and then some books are like 50 pages, you know? Um, (laughs) And that's also why I have like a lot of issues with those challenges on Goodreads or whatnot where they're like, how many books can you read in 2023? 
And I did this reading challenge, I think, back in 2021. And I really pushed myself to reach my goal, which I think I did, which I think at the time was 30 books. But because I knew I had to read 30 books and because I was aware of you know, the actual amount of time I probably have to read for fun, I chose shorter books, even though they're plenty of books that I would love to read. Um, but because they're so thick, I'm like, I can't read this right now because, you know, in the amount of time that it takes to read this book, I could be reading five books. So 2022 is when I decided I wasn't going to participate in any challenge. And the first book I read that year was Anna Karenina. <laughs> and it felt so freeing because I did think it was a good book. Um, but I would never have read it if I was like doing these kinds of reading challenges. Um, that we are so conditioned to do if we're people who like to read and be participating on social media. That was a weird way for me to phrase um, if people are on book talk. I think book talk is particularly like bad at influencing this kind of behavior because, you know, and, and no hate to book talk or booktube or whatever. Like I've gotten some really good recommendations from people who shared their book recommendations <laughs> on on these platforms. I'm indebted to them. I also don't have a lot of friends who read for fun, and the friends that I do have who read for fun have a different have different like tastes than me. And so, you know, it's a kind of like lonely experience when you're reading a book that no one you know is reading, and sometimes like I'll go on social media to see like how other people um reacted to the book that I read as a way to have this like one-sided parasocial book club. So yes, I'm a fan of people reading and talking about it online. But I also think that there's this like other problem pushed by book talk, which is like you have to read a lot. And there's like the 100 books challenge. And um, you'll see a lot of these people, these book influencers, their libraries are like massive and they have like hundreds and hundreds of books. And that might be feasible for them because a lot of them are doing this now as a full-time job, being like a book content creator. So yeah, if my job was literally to read fiction, I'd be reading like a million books a year. But for the average person who does have like a nine to five job or someone who works multiple jobs or someone who's a student, it's really unrealistic to be able to do these challenges. And not to say that any of these particular book talkers are telling you that you have to do this challenge with them, but I think people see what they're doing and they're like, oh my God, that looks so fun and so cool. Um, and they feel like they want to do it too, or they feel like they should do it because they look up to this person who is doing it. So all that is to say, all that like winding and winding around is to say that I don't necessarily think that reading more books makes you a better reader. And I also think that reading more books indicates that you're like a fast reader, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're a good reader. So another article that I was reading is an article about how um, people don't deeply read anymore, which was interesting. So what they mean is that like instead of reading every single word, thinking about every sentence that you read, aka reading slower, people are starting to skim. So there's, um, I don't know who came up with this, <laughs> but it was this Guardian article that I was reading where they were talking about how a lot of people skim in an F or Z pattern in which they sample the first line 
and then word spot through the rest of the text. I'm guilty of doing this. I have been guilty of doing it. Um, I think I've been guilty my whole life doing it because, you know, when you're in school, when you're like in high school, for instance, and you're forced to read these books that you don't want to read, but you know that you're going to get a pop quiz on it at the end of the week, I would do this kind of reading. This is the kind of reading I do when I don't want to read, <laughs> when I'm not interested in the subject matter that I'm reading about. I do it less now because I read on my um, iPad research papers. And so what I'll do is like I have the little iPad pen and I'll kind of like move the pen onto each word that I'm supposed to read to control this kind of like bad habit that I've built over time. And part of the reason why I'll do it for work is because it's my work and so I feel like I can't be skimming too much. I'll skim like certain sections that I know I'm not going to be using. But if I am trying to really follow a person's argument, then I'll really try to do this like deep reading technique. And sometimes it feels very elementary. Like I think this is how I read when I was like five years old, where I was like pointing to every single word and like reading it. But you know, nowadays I'm so aware that I have this monkey rat brain that I need to control or else I, I don't know, I get like paranoid that I'm going to lose all thinking capabilities, which is probably, you know, a very doomsday mindset about it. But what's that like phrase where it's like, if you don't use it, you lose it. So <laughs> that's kind of why I started doing analog writing again. Analog writing is what I refer to as just writing things down on pen and paper versus typing things out on my laptop. I'm a millennial. So by the time that I was in high school is when we started doing a lot more things digitally. I didn't get like a little iPad. I know some classrooms now give out little iPads to all the students. That wasn't my experience. I wasn't that far deep into it. But for every like essay or whatnot, there was an expectation that we would type it up instead of like writing it down. And so this is something that's very, very, very nostalgic for me to have to do. <laughs> Writing on pen and paper. My handwriting currently looks like chicken scratch because I'm so not used to writing. And on top of that, I feel like I have carpal tunnel. Like I just, my hand just keeps cramping like every three lines that I write because it's so unused to moving in this way. I don't know. There's probably some like non-ergonomic way that I'm also holding my pen. Who's to say? But I know for sure that Jane Austen was able to write pages and pages of books back in the day. So it's humanly possible for me to be doing this and not be feeling too much pain. But it's a work in progress. And honestly, like what I've realized when I've been writing is that because it takes me longer to write things down, I'm like actively thinking more instead of just like copying and pasting um, different phrases or sentences or points that I've seen that other people make. I'm like able to really like interact with the point that they're making on the page. And so I'll like write on the margins um, different questions that come up for me, like different thoughts or ideas that come up. And it actually makes the research process more fun because it feels like I'm having a conversation with the writer and I'm not um, necessarily – I'm like writing in a lot of shorthand because, again, I have weak – weak bone, muscle, hand strength at the moment. Um, but it feels like more casual, more informal, and I'm able to like think more about what I'm saying versus instead of like trying to think of everything as a script and making sure that it looks really tight and formal 
Um, you know what I mean? It's like a more interactive, more casual, more fun way of uh, reading and taking notes. Because honestly, at the end of the day, though I love digital for all that it's been able to afford me, right? I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for digital medium. I do think like the digital medium has a lot of flaws. And this was another article I read that was talking about the same exact issue, but they were talking about how skim reading is really like pushed and encouraged by digital means. And it makes sense. Like there's just so much content on the internet that my brain feels overloaded every time I log on and I'm reading an article and I have like literally like 50 tabs open and I'm like, oh my God, like I have 49 like more articles to read after this because the way that I research is that I'll like search for something. I'll I'll search like, I don't know, Victorian hair jewelry on JSTOR and then I'll open every single article that's relating to that, that has that in the metadata for like the first two pages or whatnot because after the third page I feel like my JSTOR results are kind of whatever but oh my god okay wait if you don't know what JSTOR is it's a database it's full of like academic journals and books and yeah you just like search things on there and then you get a list of like all these um available papers research papers that you can read I have a complimentary JSTOR login thanks to the New York Public Library, um, but a lot of people have access to JSTOR through their universities or academic institutions. I'm not sure how much it costs to like afford a membership if you're just paying it as an individual. So I would highly recommend if you're interested in this kind of thing to look into what your library has to offer in terms of like complimentary um, logins. But yeah, so like I'll open all these tabs of research and then I'm overwhelmed by how many tabs I have instead of like just, I guess, going through one at a time and reading them. But I think like for me, I'm just trying to go like more efficient as possible. And sometimes just because an article is about Victorian hair jewelry doesn't mean it has anything like to do with the kind of argument that I'm trying to make. Um, and so that's when I'll like skim read to see if the article makes sense and then I'll go back to read it if I think I'm, I can glean something um, good out of it. I don't know. There's definitely pros and cons to that research technique, but I think the cons is that I feel like I'm overwhelmed with information and I'm definitely prioritizing the essay versus like actual learning, right? Um, because I'm thinking about what is going into the paper and not like what is just interesting to know for myself personally. And that's because this is a job at the end of the day. But it definitely has affected the way that I read digitally in general. And that's just an example of like how there's just so much information online. So you feel like every time you're reading an article, you could be reading another article instead. And that's why you want to read as fast as possible. I mean, that's at least my experience. Um, if I'm just like on the Atlantic even and there's a bunch of cool articles I want to read, I'm opening up like the ones that I want to read and then I'll just kind of skim them to see if it's interesting enough before I go to the next one. And a lot of the times when it comes to like reading for pleasure, I'm not going to lie, I just skim like because I get the information or whatever from it and then I'm like, okay, I guess that was kind of interesting but I'm not going to go back and read word for word the whole thing again. I don't know. I don't even know if I'm making sense. Am I making sense? 
<laughs> so there was another study that was um, included in this Guardian article. And they found that digital readers absorb information faster, but also absorb more misinformation. And y'all, like, let me say, none of us are immune to propaganda. It's actually so crazy how much propaganda people will interpret as fact. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of people are not deeply reading. Um, Because if we're skimming things, that means we're not seeing everything super clearly and we're not able to catch the kinds of mistakes or the um, points that just don't make any sense. These are the kind of red flags that propagandists will have in the in the kind of articles that they're writing but if we're just skimming we're not going to catch those things and we're just going to interpret everything we're reading as like something factually true when it might not be unfortunately a lot of like deep reading for these things also means that you have to like look into the sources (laughs) that are being used here's a little fun story of my own personal experience. So for one of the previous episodes, I wanted to talk about this article that I read in The Atlantic and it was written by some guy that I, I don't even know. Um, but it was just about how people are like mean on, on the internet. And I had recorded this whole like 15 minute spiel about his article. And then my editor, Sophie, like messaged me as she was editing and was like, hey, just so you know, this guy is kind of like a right-wing dude and I don't know if you want to include that, um, this article in your in your podcast or if you, if you want to make a disclaimer or something. And I was like, oh my fucking God, I had no idea who this guy was. Like I didn't go back and read any of the previous stuff that he's written. And now kind of like looking back at that article, it definitely colors it in a new light because I'm like, this guy is talking about how People have no like sense of moral education anymore that makes them nice people on the internet, which I think can be a true argument. But with his background, I'm like, that's the kind of rhetoric that a lot of nationalist people say because they're like, we have no more religious education. That's a lot of the times what right wing people think about um, moral education, they think like religious education, which for me is like, that's a no, no, I think. I think I'm very much into the separation of church and state. And so, yeah, that's just an example, like a personal example of me not like going deeper into the sources, the source, uh, the author source before like absorbing an article. But it can go even more subtle because it's like, okay, this person might be just like, you know, some staff writer, like they have no history of touting like racist propaganda, but they read someone who has and they're citing it into their article because they, like me, didn't know what this writer's like old history is. So Writing, I feel like, is a very complex game of telephone at the end of the day. And as a reader, it's just so important for us to be able to trace it from the source and be able to interpret, like, what this person's argument is and how that's supported by the things that they've read. Or if they've just, like, come up with this and it's not supported by the things that they read, like, source, believe me, or... The sources that they've read are just bad sources in general. So I don't know. 
This requires a lot of deep reading that I think a lot of us don't have time to do, which is so fair. And also a lot of times like news articles don't even have source. They don't list their sources, which I think is ridiculous. And I feel like that should be something that is necessary for news, magazines, whatever to do. I'm like, cite your damn sources because I mean, this is just like not even an issue in the grand scheme of things. But you know when like those articles come out every so often about corsets and how terrible they are for women's health and how like constricting and they would crush organs. And we all know that's like an over-exaggeration of what actually happened in the Victorian era and that these doctors that were writing these kind of like corset mythology – they're Victorian doctors and therefore don't trust anything that they say. These people have no idea what they're saying. They were like touting eugenics. So a Victorian doctor is not a good source. But a lot of these articles that write the, this kind of corset propaganda, corset tacanda, um, they won't include any sources. And I think that's how like the mythology is able to spread so much. But if they were like, okay, source this news article from like, 1840 I would say a lot more of us would be able to glean that this is not uh, a good source anymore <laughs> versus if they sourced Valerie Steele who wrote this amazing book on corsets which I highly recommend purchasing if you're into corsets also Valerie Steele she's a fashion historian she just really knows her stuff and I would purchase or support anything that she puts out so if Valerie Steele is in those citations I'm like yeah this is correct whatever you're saying so in some people who do not have robust reading skills because of, you know, the way society is, I'm not even saying that like people who are not strong readers are not strong readers by choice. There are definitely some people who are fully anti-reading, crazy idea, but you know, that's their own prerogative. But there's also lots of people who don't have time because they're working multiple jobs or they have family members or kids to take care of. There's so many reasons for why people don't have the time to deeply read anymore. And it's not just because they like want to be ignorant. So I want to recognize that. But I also think like the sad outcome of all this means that people are just more prone to political propaganda, prone to supporting politicians who offer simplism, which was talked about in this Guardian article as offering simple answers for complex problems, which is a lot what Donald Trump did, to be honest. So that's just like an example of someone who really simplifies issues for their constituents to the point of like oversimplifying, to the point of just like spreading misinformation. So yes, <laughs> words exist for a reason, right? Like Sometimes it really just takes a lot of words and sometimes it really takes like complex words to describe exactly what's happening. And I don't think it's gatekeeping to use difficult words when you're talking and trying to explain a difficult to explain phenomenon or concept. Um, I don't because dictionaries are free. You can literally Google online like a word that you don't understand. Um, there's a lot of consensus out there right now where people just don't want to do anything they want everything to be spoon-fed to them for them and that's why like I've seen in my time on social media some people get 
targeted on Twitter or TikTok for being pretentious and for using vocabulary that's not um, understood by, you know, the majority of people. It's just so weird for me that rather than being like, hey, I don't know that word, like maybe I should look it up and expand my vocabulary and make myself smarter, the defense mechanism is, hey, you stupid pretentious bitch, like stop using words no one can understand. <laughs> also, some real world repercussions of how this could affect people who are so like not invested in reading or who just don't have the access to read is that it makes them more vulnerable to getting into like bad legal contracts, to misunderstanding like their rights, to even like going to the voting booth and reading like public referendums and just not understanding it and voting for something you actually don't want. These are all systemic issues that could be combated by being informed and having a certain level of literacy. If you want to hear, where'd you get that this holiday season? Uncommon Goods is your secret weapon. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your entire family, Uncommon Goods does exactly what they want. As just an example of something cool on their site, there's a hand warmer oatmeal bowl I found. I love eating oatmeal when it's cold and the cute ergonomic design was designed by ceramicist Maggie Ames. There's a bunch of cool small businesses that you can find at Uncommon Goods in general. They have everything from art to jewelry and even experiences. I also found a focaccia making experience which you can purchase for someone who's into cooking. There's also other crafty workshops available for a more hands-on gift. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com Mina. That's uncommongoods.com Mina for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. Another thing that I want to bring up because I didn't come across this when I was reading but it is something that I thought about is like people who don't have the capabilities to read in the same way as everyone else and so like people who have dyslexia or who have limited vision. I don't know how audiobooks affect the studies because all the studies that I was looking at compare reading on Kindle versus like reading in a print book and between those, they say there was like this study in Norway. Let me look at it. There was a study in Norway where the, psych the psychologists and Margaret and Ann Manger. I can't even read my handwriting. Jeez. <laughs> Ann Manger and her colleagues found that students who read on print were superior in comprehension to screen reading peers, inability to sequence detail and reconstruct plot in chronological order. So I've been influenced to start reading print books again. I mostly read on Kindle. And part of that is because books, I don't want to pay for like a hardcover book if I don't know if I'm going to like it or not. Because you know with a lot of new books, they're kind of expensive. The prices rack up. I'll read a book in two days and then I'm like, thanks. Like what am I supposed to do now? Buy more books? And so I tend to not buy books – I also don't like the idea of having something I don't like 
in my house because I live in New York. And so, you know, I always talk about like the limited real estate I have, but I really am aware of all the things that I have in my apartment. And if I have a book that I don't like in my apartment, I know it's there. Like I'm fully aware that it's there. (laughs) So I think I might go back to the library and borrow books. I've always had issues with library book reading because I think putting a deadline on when I have to finish a book stresses me out. Um, So as a kid, I always had like overdue library books. Um, But then also for a lot of new books, it's really difficult to get like the library book for the first like couple months that it's been released because everyone is swarming and they only have a certain number of copies for everyone. But, you know, maybe I'll just prioritize reading library books when it comes to like older books and then I guess I can just Kindle read <laughs> for newer books. We'll fi- we'll figure it out, okay? We'll figure it out. But I definitely want to introduce more print because I think for me personally, I do see that difference with how my brain is working. Maybe it's placebo after reading all these <laughs> articles, but I I don't know. Like I think it's working placebo or not so we're gonna keep going down that path oh yeah also this is just another thing about like why language is so important and specifically the language that we choose and the vocabulary we choose to say certain things so in my acting class I've graduated my program um but you know graduated into the SAG strike so haven't been able to do anything with what I've learned which is so cool um but in my acting program my teacher would always say something that was that would resonate with me a lot, which is that, why do you say that? He would say that to me all the time. Like, why did you say that? Why did you need those words to say that? Because what makes good acting different from like bad acting is your authenticity as your character. Like you have to really believe you are your character. And if you're saying a line that in your head, you're like, I would never say this. Like I have no reason to say this then the way that you say it is not going to come across as authentic. It's going to come across as like, I'm supposed to read a line, Um, which is really perceivable for audiences. Like you don't think it is, but you can really tell when someone's a bad actor because this is another thing my acting teacher always said. Good acting is a lot of the times unrecognizable by audiences, but bad acting is something they absolutely will recognize. (laughs) And so... Yeah, a lot of like the exercises we had to do was justify why our character would say a specific line in this specific moment using these specific words. It's really challenging to work with a script than if the script writer is not a good script writer. But um, yeah, for anything to feel real, it's like we choose the words we use for a reason. Every word that we say has some kind of thought process behind it. So I don't know. That's also something that I thought about when I was reading these articles. Okay, the last thing I want to say about this is there was this article in Nylon called The Making of a Literary Eight Girl, which I think kind of wraps in with what we've already been talking about. But basically, in this Nylon article, they were talking about the specific phenomenon of mostly women writers that were profiled who have created like marketing campaigns for their books. So some examples in the article, Madeline Cash made custom merch for her short story collection, Earth Angel. Nada Alec created a series of book trailers or short films to drum up interest for her short story collection, Bad Thoughts. 
Otessa Moshve hosted her launch of her book, Lapvona, at Proenza Schooler, and she actually collabed with Proenza also by um, writing a series of diary entries for their runway show. Z-Way hosted a book release party at The Standard in the East Village. The Standard is a very, like, chic hotel. Uh, a lot of things happening there if you don't know if you're not living in New York. And there was, like, a little impromptu photo shoot featuring other literary it girl, Emrata. Emrata? Emily Ratajkowski. <laughs> Allie Robottom threw a book party for her book Aesthetica, which is about plastic surgery and... She had pay-by-donation Botox and a Caroline Calloway video appearance at her event. So this is so different from how writers used to market their books, which is like they would go on these book tours where they would read a chapter at a um, bookstore or whatever. Like if you've seen Before Sunset, when uh, that's like one of my favorite movies. When Jesse, at the beginning of the movie, he's like reading a chapter of his book in this little bookstore and he was basically doing this like European book tour. Um, it's very much that. That's like what authors would do. And they would answer questions, you know, audience questions. But nowadays it's like that's not really what a lot of these younger writers are doing. They're opting to do more creative, splashy events to market their books. And you may be wondering why that is, um, other than it's fun, but it's also like, you really have to, I think, stand out in this day and age as a writer, especially because the economy is worse. So it's like, it's always been a hard job to be a writer. Like very few of them are actually reaching like success to write full time, but with this economy, it's even worse to be a writer. And then also I think with like Substack and the way that that's transformed writing, writers are kind of now influencers, um, which feels yuck, honestly, to like say out loud. But if you've been on Substack, you'll notice that they've really revamped the platform. It used to be just like this newsletter platform where people – would have newsletters, you would subscribe to individual newsletters that were hosted by Substack. But now, like, Substack has its own feed where, like, writers are kind of, like, tweeting. Um, and I think Substack launched this because a lot of writers were previously on Twitter but then didn't like what Elon has done with Twitter and so they've migrated over to Substack instead. Um, Substack now offers, like, recommendations, like, in a news feed for articles or newsletters that you should read. And so... Because of that, I think a lot of writers are now entering this like content creator category, which is cool if they're able to juggle that, if they're like business savvy, if they know how to market themselves, like their aesthetics and everything. But I think it can be really harmful for like writers who don't know how to create content because that's not something that you necessarily needed to do to become a writer. You just had to be a good writer. But now to be a writer, you have to have like an expanded skill set, which ends up being more of like a gatekeeper for people who don't um, have or want to expand in this kind of way. But there was this quote from Allie in the article that I will read because I think it offers a positive perspective to these kind of like influencery marketing campaign events for <laughs> for writers she says I knew I wanted to make this book a performance in its marketing and also a confusing performance in some ways you can read the book and be like oh this is anti-plastic surgery and Instagram or you can read it and be like it's more complicated than that 
I wanted the parties and some of the marketing around the book to perform that nuance and also perform the inadvertent sexiness of some of the content. I think it was really successful in that regard, she says. Make it fun and get people hyped about the book in tried and true ways because then they're going to be curious about what's inside. Sure. So I think there can be positive things for why you would want to throw a party. Also, it's like a celebration. I'm all for celebrations. It takes a while to publish a book. So I think that should be celebrated point blank. But yeah, I think my only concern is that there's now this like expectation of being this 360 talent individual to be a writer. And I feel like that's bled into actually like almost every industry now where it's like, if you're an artist, it's not enough to just paint. You also have to be like on social media. If you have a store, it's not enough to just like have a good curatorial vision and sell clothes. It's like you also have to have a store page and take aesthetic photos of all your products and really like level up your e-commerce. And also if you're like a model, it's like a lot of what I've been hearing around the fashion industry is like modeling management companies don't want to sign models anymore who just know how to walk, which, you know, is one of the biggest parts about being a model. But they're like, oh, she has to be interesting. Like she has to be pursuing something else on the side because it's not enough to just model anymore. And what I'm seeing as a result is that there's just more hustle culture, more burnout, And a lot of the things that I think people end up being pressured to make is like not as good, like quantity over quality, because when your whole job, when your whole platform is dominated by the algorithm, you have to be creating on a consistent basis. And if you drop off, if you take years, for instance, to write a book, which sometimes for some people it does take that long then you're sacrificing potential marketing success for your own creative vision and for your own artistic integrity. And I don't know, it's just, it's a problem that has existed for a while in terms of like choosing between profit versus artistic integrity, but I think it's just escalated in the realm of social media. Okay, other things I've been thinking about in the past two weeks. Um, I've been obsessed with tinned fish. I was introduced by my friend Tessa, um, who actually runs the YouTube channel Modern Girls. We've been friends for a while, but um, she's obsessed with tinned fish. And so she got me hooked on tinned fish. And now I've been eating tinned fish like every day. And if I die of mercury poisoning, um, you'll know why. For real, I've actually been like a little bit stressed out about mercury poisoning because I came across this like Janelle Monet testimony where she said she was suffering from mercury poisoning because she went pescatarian and presumably was eating fish every day, which is what I currently am doing. Just so you know, I do not promote eating fish every day. I do not lead by my example because The FDA does say that you should only be eating fish like two to three times a week, but that is not something that's reasonable. I don't think I've ever eaten fish like that low level of fish in my entire life per week. Like my diet has always been very fish heavy and also mercury is not like a widespread problem in Asia where a lot of people have very fish heavy diets either. And so that's why I'm willing to take the risk. I do not encourage anyone to do the same thing as me. Regardless, I got into this tin fish craze and what's really interesting is I was reading articles about it because tin fish is also having a moment culturally because of TikTok. 
There was this woman who was like the princess of caviar or whatever. Like her family owns Marquis Caviar. And she grew a following on TikTok doing caviar reviews. And like, I don't know, there's just been like a whole moment for like canned fish goods on TikTok. So I was reading articles about it. And someone was saying that it's like recession core because tinned fish is like giving great depression and you know some other tinned fish enthusiasts were saying how their commenters were like oh my god like yes like great depression great depression food dinner whatever you get what I mean so I was looking into it because I had never heard of tinned fish being like a thing during the great depression mostly like I did eat canned sardines like tinned sardines I don't know now people say tinned because tin sounds nicer and like more uh, glamorous than canned but I ate tinned sardines as a kid like on baguettes and stuff like for sandwiches sometimes with uh pickled onions so if you haven't had that oh and cilantro it honestly like slays so hard but I grew up eating this Never heard of this association as being like a poor person food until recently. So obviously looked into it and found instead like a slew of other depression related food facts. So I'm actually thinking about making like a more robust video on this for my Patreon. I guess it's like a little weird to be doing on my YouTube channel. I don't know. The thing is guys, I love food so much and I love like food history, but I feel like it's such a pivot from like the kind of content that I normally do that people would be like, what the fuck are you doing? And so I haven't lost my food virginity on Maine yet. Food commentary history virginity. <laughs> so I learned recently that one of the reasons why American food was so bland in the 20th century, because, okay, you know how everyone's like, makes that joke about how Britain colonized the world and then didn't use any spices in their cooking. And I feel like America is an extension of Britain in terms of like that mentality of like, these white people don't use spices in their cooking, which is so weird. And part of the reason why Americans didn't use spices in their cookings for much of the 20th century, like especially the early 20th century, is because of the temperance movement, which is such an interesting parallel, right? So if you don't know what the temperance movement in America was, it's like the prohibition movement. It's like when um, people were advocating for Americans to out the American government to ban alcohol because they thought alcohol was creating a lot of like health problems um, within American citizens. And this is another common misconception about the temperance movement where people just conflate it to be like this group of women who hate fun and are super religious and just like want to ruin everything that's good. Part of that might be correct. Like there was a big crossover between religion and temperance, but also alcohol was straight up ruining people's lives. Like it was ruining the lives of these men who were dependent on alcohol to get them through the day, the hard working day, and they were spending all their money on it and they were getting fucked up like they were dying. There were many positive reasons for wanting to take like a stance against alcohol and I can see why even though I'm for like freedom of choice like you can do whatever you want drink however much you want don't drink whatever I can see like the rationale behind wanting to outlaw this if you were personally affected 
by a drunk husband or like if someone in your community was personally affected by this. There was a really good episode on prohibition by um, this food podcast. Oh my God, let me look it up. <laughs> it's called You're Wrong About Prohibition and it was by Gastropod and it literally like enlightened me so much about prohibition in ways that my history teachers in high school never told me about. So I would highly recommend listening to that if you're super into this subject. But relating back to spices... Because the temperance movement was going on, people were more cautious of the kinds of things that they were putting in their body. There was also this ongoing belief that foods with a lot of spices were also stimulating and that could also agitate your body and arouse hidden addiction. And what they considered spicy foods, um, chili powder, garlic, vinegar, mustard, pickles. Another reason why there was blandness, and this is also, you know, Great Depression era time, is that spices were really expensive. And the average American family during the Great Depression spent almost 25% of their household income on food. Which, okay, honestly, like living in New York, I feel like a lot of people do spend money on food here because food is so expensive. But According to the consumer expenditures in the New York Metropolitan Area Report of 2021 to 2022 from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the portion of a New York household's budget spent on food is 12.8%, which is actually not significantly different from the 12.6% U.S. average. So, yeah, we're still, even though we're spending a lot on food and it feels like the price of eggs is increasing every single month, um, compared to the Great Depression, it's still considerably less on average. So yeah, people had this idea that like spices were expensive, so obviously we're not going to be spending money on spices. And then also there was less of a reason to buy spices because World War I had this food will win the war campaign, which encouraged Americans to conserve certain foods like fat and wheat. Um, so maximum amounts could be sent over to troops overseas. In turn, uh, governments taught families to cook without these ingredients. So at this time in like 1929, 1930s, um, American households were ready, like equipped with like the knowledge of how to cook without these kind of like extra ingredients that flavor food and make them yummy. <laughs> I don't know if this is necessarily true because I haven't looked into it yet, but I also wonder if that's why a lot of um, American cuisine in the mid-20th century like was about boiling vegetables because growing up in my Asian household, we would saute vegetables, we would fry vegetables, vegetables were like doused in all kinds of sauces and I grew up loving to eat vegetables. Some of my friends on the other hand did not grow up loving to eat vegetables because the vegetables they had at home were like boiled and they're like frozen peas that were boiled. So I was thinking about like the reason why a lot of American households boil things and I'm assuming a lot of it had to do with this kind of like depression era mindset that might have spilled over into like future generations um, where you didn't want to have butter or fat or oil lying around because that was expensive and those are the ingredients that you would use to like saute and fry things. And so you just like relied on boiling because all you needed is water technically. So it was cheaper to do. That is just a hypothesis. I have no idea if that's proven or not, but it kind of makes sense, right? Of course, I don't think that's like the only reason. Um, there has just been like a lot of xenophobia within 
America's food scene, especially in the 20th century. Um, you know, just going back into like early Italian immigration in the early 1900s when people were like against garlic because of temperance, but also because garlic is like Italians. And at the time, Italians were definitely more coded as an outsider group. And then in the 60s, there was that whole like MSG scare with Chinese food, um, which definitely is rooted in xenophobia because food scientists have like found no conclusive claims that MSG is like as bad for you as what all these reports were saying at the time. So I bring up these stories because I also think it's important to recognize that not every family in America was eating like bland food throughout the 20th century. It definitely varied based on ethnic heritage and open-mindedness to spices. Prices were definitely a factor, but it wasn't like the only factor. In this NPR, oh sorry, not NPR, WBUR, but NPR News? Okay, there's like a website here that... <laughs> That interviewed Jane Ziegelman and Andy Coe, who are a married couple, but they're also cultural. They, they were interviewed because they're a married couple. No, they're cultural food historians, like culinary historians. Um, I think that's the term. And they wrote the book, A Square Meal, which examines the impact of the country's decade-long Great Depression on American diets. I have ordered that book. It's like an older book, so you're not you don't have to pre-order if you're interested in like ordering it. I just ordered it because I'm very interested in all this like history stuff, food history stuff, as I said before. But in the interview, Co explains like what was a, you know, stereotypical portrait of an Italian dinner or Italian meal during the Great Depression. He said, the food that Italian immigrants ate was certainly cheap and delicious and highly nutritious. I just think of the Italian immigrant woman in New York City and wherever else they lived. During the early spring, the dandelion greens would start coming up in the parks in the vacant lots, and they would go out and collect dandelion greens, take them home, and saute them in a little olive oil. You want vitamins? There's a great source of vitamins. They didn't eat much meat because meat was expensive, but they had great pasta dishes, which were very good, filled with flavor and filled with nutrients. So as for the tinned fish of it all, was it really depression food? From my preliminary research, I found mostly yes. <laughs> I was reading about how sardines were really profitable during the Great Depression. So Monterey, which was the sardine capital of the world at the time, didn't suffer as much as most areas during the Great Depression. But they did suffer in the 1940s, and that's because... West Coast sardine fishermen were mostly Japanese or Japanese-American, and during World War II, the U.S. government sent most of them away to internment camps, and a lot of them didn't return to the industry. Canned salmon was also widely eaten around in the South because the government subsidized it, so canned salmon cost less than half a nickel. Part of the reason why was because in the South, um, the local diet was really focused on corn. It was very corn dominant, corn forward, which caused this disease called pellagra, which is caused by vitamin B3 deficiency. So the linguist Sterling Eisenmenger even traces the origin of the term redneck to pellagra sufferers who had bright red lesions on their skin, which was the first symptom caused by the disease. And in general, there was just like a heavy... Um, Emphasis on canned products during the Depression. Uh, unlike now when we're all into like fresh food and farm to table and whatnot. Um, actually, in the early 20th century, fresh was not necessarily good. People liked 
the idea of frozen foods, of canned foods, because advertisers claim that these foods were made with better ingredients than the ones that were fresh at the grocery store. There's also like this paranoia or this fear that, you know, the bakery that you bought your bread from was not clean and that merchants, if you bought like from local businesses, they were touching your food and they were dirty or whatever. So the idea of like canned food or pre-sliced or pre-wrapped bread, these all gave you the comfort that your food was not unsanitary or dirty or potentially hazardous. Now, is that necessarily true? No. Like people touch things when they're packaging things. Like your pre-sliced bread is still touched by someone else. It's still in a factory. It's still like, you know, potentially exposed to whatever kind of bacteria that comes with like a human hand. Obviously, we like to think that bacteria has decreased because, you know, cleanliness practices have gotten a lot better over the years than since when, I don't know, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, which is a horrifying read if you ever had to read that in school. But nevertheless, people are still involved in the packaging of frozen and canned foods. People, I guess, were just less aware of it back then. Though honestly, people are really unaware of how their food is made anyway today. So maybe nothing has really changed that much. All right, so on that note, I think we've reached the end of this episode. If you're interested in keeping up with me and my work, if you're interested in supporting my work, I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash highbrowbymina. The link will be in the show notes. And also I have an Instagram page for this podcast called highbrow.pod. This episode was edited by the lovely Sophie Carter, music by Olivia Martinez, and cover art by Lindsay Mintz. Thanks for listening. Hey.